Our Lord, in this section of Scripture, your enemies bring you into what was a hotbed of controversy then. It still is today. But how wonderful for us, because you take the opportunity to open up the truth of God. We need not guess about marriage and sexuality. We need not guess what God's mind is. You open his mind for us. Thanks to you, we can gain insight on marriage from the top, marriage from the very mind and heart of God, our creator. Grant us today, unlike your enemies, to listen to you humbly, to put ourselves under your teaching as your students, as your disciples, as your slaves. Make us teachable. Teach us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, enemies of God's truth always mean their opposition for harm, but God is able to turn it to good. We talked about that some as we were studying the doctrine of the Trinity, how it's the heretics who uh, created the need for the fathers of the church to examine Scripture closely, respond with an even deeper statement of scriptural truth. And so it is here, uh, as they approach Jesus with hostility, their intention is to uh, make him look stupid, make him look wrong, expose him, oppose him, twist God's truth. But in the conflict, God glorifies and clarifies his truth. And we're going to learn a great deal from that for issues that are very timely and very topical and very pressing on us today. So let's look together. And first we'll see in verses 1 and 2, marching to the goal. Marching to the goal. Verse 1, and it happened when Jesus finished these words that he relocated from Galilee and came into the regions of Judea across the Jordan. So that signals the shift, capital letter A, the shift. There's a shift in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, which has been centered in the north, in the area of Galilee. But now there's going to be a turn. But before I talk about that, notice Matthew's seam here at the start of his words. The, the seam that he gives every time he records a discourse of the Lord Jesus. Now remember, the structure of this gospel is five major discourses, lessons, sandwiched between six narrative sections. <clears throat> and every time uh, a discourse is finished, Matthew signals that to us by words just like this, and it happened when Jesus finished these words. This is the fourth of five times. So we've progressed well into his telling of Jesus' story. Uh, and the sixth time, actually, in, in 26.1, he's going to say, and it happened when Jesus finished all these words, signaling that that's the last of the discourses he's recording for us. So in chapter 18, we had a discourse on living as citizens of God's kingdom in community together. And now Matthew's shifting back to a narrative section and this section is a real movement in Jesus' story. So secondly, the second half of this letter, he relocated from Galilee in the north and came into the regions of Judea across the Jordan, moving to the south. So he's heading towards Jerusalem. Now, what did we see the first time we saw Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel? Where was that? That was in chapter 2 where all Jerusalem was upset at the coming of the Magi, and there was a king in Jerusalem who wanted to do what? He wanted to kill Jesus. 
So the first time we see Jerusalem, the authority in Jerusalem is wanting to kill Jesus. What's going to happen the last time we see Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel? Well, that's where we're moving, and that's what we're moving to. we just seen Jerusalem mentioned at the beginning of chapter 15. And what was that? Jesus is still in the north, but scribes and uh, Pharisees come from I always want to think of Jerusalem as north, but it's south. They come from Jerusalem to test him, to try to expose him again. So we're being signaled that Jerusalem is going to be a hostile thing. And Jesus made that explicit back in chapter 16. Remember Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said he would build his church on that foundation, that confession, that truth. And then we see in Matthew 16, 21, from then Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary for him to go away into Jerusalem. That would not have shocked him. Of course, that's where the Messianic king is going to go. Of course, he's going to go to the capital. Of course, he's going to go to Jerusalem. It's the rest of the verse that shocked them. Necessary to go away into Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised. That shocked them. And that moved Peter to rebuke Jesus and say that was, he should not have said that. That can't possibly happen. So this is that. This is Jesus moving them along towards Jerusalem where he has said he's going to be rejected by all the authorities and he was going to be killed. So you and I, the readers, know what's coming. When we read these words, that he's relocating from Galilee and heading south, we know what that means. We know where he's going. That's the shift. But I want you to notice, secondly, letter B, what's the same? S-A-M-E, what's the same? Verse 2, and many crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So what does this mean? It means the same thing it's always meant. The messianic kingdom is present in Jesus. In him, that kingdom has come and is being offered, has been being offered to Jerusalem, to the Jews, to Israel, but they've been rejecting it. And signally, they rejected it when they said that the works he did were works done by Satan, and thus they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But still, he's still Jesus, and he's still doing what he does, and where he is, that's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is present with him, so he's he's not changing. So it would be a terrible misunderstanding to think, ah, yes, Jesus started off so powerfully and so with so much promise, but then he petered out and let himself get killed. In fact, I heard a fellow when I was a very young Christian. I worked with a guy who was a deacon's son in a big church, and he said, if Jesus was so great, why did he let himself get killed? How could you? I mean, if you tried to misunderstand the gospel story, I don't know if you could do a better job than that. So this shows, this just reminds us, no, no, he's still Jesus. He's still in full possession of all his powers because he doesn't change. And what's going to happen is not going to be because his power faded or he stopped being who he's been all along. Jerusalem is going to see him in his full power and still will reject him. So, just as an aside, people who think, oh, well, this person or that person would definitely believe if they just could have it explained to them. Oh, no. If only that were the case. Yes, your computer will accept whatever data you put on the drive because it's not totally depraved. People are. 
People can have the truth right in front of them and not believe. I remember a lady who'd heard the gospel many times and just always found some excuse. And one of the things she liked to say was, oh, if only I'd been alive in Jesus' day. If only I'd been alive then. And I said, what difference would that have made? Judas was alive in that day. Judas saw it all. He didn't believe. So, things are the same because Jesus is the same. So now we come into this confrontation. And Roman numeral two is marriage as a gambit. Gambit is G-A-M-B-I-T. If you don't know what a gambit is, a gambit is a ploy. It's a trick. It's a plot. It's when you're trying to do something. You're trying to pull something off. Trying to, to trick someone. In this case, they're trying to expose Jesus and make him look bad and foolish. They've got a plan, a brilliant plan. And they are going to use the topic of marriage and divorce to do that. That's their brilliant plan, verses 3 through 12. And so uh, I tell you, going into this, you long-timers will smile and nod. This is a story that is three questions and answers. The third question is Im- implied, as we'll see. But again, Matthew tells this story broken down into three. Three questions and answers. So the first one then, letter A, we see Jesus' enemies ploy, P-L-O-Y. What is the trick they try on him? What do they try to trap him with? What's their ploy? There's the framing question in verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him, testing him and saying, it is, al- is it allowable for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? Well, you know, if you just stop at the start and Pharisees came up to him, well, that's wonderful. That's what we want people to do, isn't it? We want people to come to Jesus. And these Pharisees, they came to Jesus. Isn't that great? But there's coming to Jesus and there's coming to Jesus, isn't there? Do they come to Jesus to learn of him? Do they come to submit themselves to him and his teaching? Do they come humbly to be taught by him? No, they come with the attitude that they've got all the answers, and he is not on the right side of the equation. They're his enemies. Yes, they come to Jesus, but they come to him to expose him. And so again, you see uh, that with a great many people today. Uh, Christians, yes, we should always urge people to read the Bible. Just don't think it's going to be magical. It is possible to read the Bible and come away hating God even worse. If you come to the Bible full of yourself, full of your pride, fully assured that you know the answers to everything, well then, yes, the Bible is going to be a repugnant book because it is brimful of the Lordship of God. And Jesus is that too. They come to him full of themselves to test him. Their intent is to expose him and make him fail. So they ask about a a divisive, controversial matter uh, in order, hopefully, to make him look foolish. Uh, Yes, but we should come to Jesus The right way to come to Jesus is to come in repentant faith. To come to Jesus denying ourselves, becoming as little children, as Jesus said. Ready to start all over, humbled before Him. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and walking after Him. That's the right way to come to Him. They're not coming that way. Now, I also, before we move on, want to notice with you two very important truths. So they want to undo Jesus what don't they do? What isn't their approach? Now, if, if there was somebody you wanted to expose and he was showing himself as a, billing himself as a great miracle worker, a great healer, what would you look at? What would you target? Probably target his healings 
and see if they're really legit healings, see if they could possibly be uh, overturned and exposed. But they don't do that. They never do that. They can't do that. And that's the difference between Jesus Christ and every supposed healer since the first century. They're no Jesus. In Jesus' case, the one thing they didn't do is they didn't come up and say, you don't really do signs. You don't really heal people. You don't legitimately raise the dead. They didn't do that. They didn't ever do that. That's why they went to the desperate measure of saying, well, of course he does miracles. Nobody can deny that. It's got to be by Satan's power. You know, but they couldn't say that it didn't happen. And they don't say that here. If there'd been any way to cast shade on his miraculous works, that's where they would have gone, right? You see that? They don't. Now, contrast that with all the claims of great miraculous miracles today. And it's exactly the opposite. So, notice that. Now, we need some background to understand why this is a controversy and what the controversy exactly is. When they're talking about divorce, what's in their mind, and we'll see this in a moment, but I, I kinda, I'll, I'm going to front load us, is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So turn to that, please, in your Bibles, with me, so that we're all looking at the same part. Deuteronomy 24, and the subject of divorce comes up. The LSB is a, is a good faithful translation here. So we read in Deuteronomy 24, if a man takes a wife and marries her. Now, notice this is a long if then. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house, and she goes out of his house, and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her, literally hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house, same thing again. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then. So that's a long if then. So the first part is not the part that the legislation is all about. This is what happens. So here's the law, verse 4. Then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin on the land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. So the gist of this then is that it's the case of a man who's married a woman and he finds some indecency. Now we're going to come back to that, but the literal Hebrew is erath davar, which means nakedness of a word. That's just a very literal translation. You say, thank you, that's very helpful. Well, it's not, but it's going to be important. So literally nakedness of a word. Um, and he writes a certificate of divorce. Well, this was the practice at the time of, of all the, the, well, I mean, this sort of divorce was, and he gives her a certificate of divorce. That is unique. And she goes and marries another man. Well, the first man can't take her back. So part of the, part of the, the reason for this is, is actually a protection for her. It's a protection for the second marriage. The, the first husband can't then try to woo her back and, and make a, um, a light or frivolous divorce and then try to get her back from her second husband. Can't do it. 
He's, he's said goodbye to her. And so um, she has a certificate of divorce that says you are free to remarry. That's what the certificate said. And she remarries, but the first husband can't take her back. That's the gist of this. Now, how does that apply? What's that about? What does that teach? In Jesus' day, there were two main positions, two main understandings, and I've spelled it out for you. First letter B is the minority position, the minority position, and that's Rabbi Shammai, who lived uh, 50 B.C. to A.D. 30, so he was roughly contemporaneous here. And his position, uh, I, my memory device is Shammai strict, the, the S's, because his position was the divorce and remarriage were permissible only in cases of adultery, only in that case. Now, otherwise there would be no divorce and no remarriage. It's always the case that when there's divorce, remarriage is accepted and it's an option. Always remarriage is accepted. That's the point of the divorce. The, the point of the divorce is to free both parties from the bonds of the marriage. And so both are now free to remarry. Shammai said that, well, that's only in the case of adultery. There is, no other, uh, there is no other cause. Now, the other position is the majority position, letter B, the majority position. This is what most people held, and it's probably what Jesus' disciples also understood uh, from Rabbi Hillel, who lived about 110 to 10 B.C. So, he saw two grounds of divorce. I told you literally the Hebrew text was Erwath Davar, pardon me, indecency of a, of a word, literally. And he said that that was actually two things. Indecency was specifically adultery, but a word was just something. And indeed, that word Davar is, is used the way we use the word thing often, just something, some matter, some object. And so his application was divorce for adultery or whatever. <laughs> That's basically what it is, whatever. So if he found a prettier woman, well, there's grounds for divorce. If his wife burnt his eggs, burnt his food, that's grounds for divorce. If he didn't love her anymore, that's grounds for divorce. You say, well, that's like just anything. Yep, that's exactly right. Adultery or whatever. And don't you see, that's what's behind their question. Do you see the way they ask it? Is it allowable for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? In other words, the way Rabbi Hillel says it. Just any reason. Any and every reason. Is that allowable grounds for divorce? And again, this is important to understand, this probably would have been what the apostles had been raised thinking, because this was the prevalent teaching. The other was a minority view. So both parties agreed, though, that adultery required divorce. If there was adultery, there needed to be divorce. And both parties agreed that divorce always permitted remarriage, because the divorce ends the marriage. So now we get into Jesus' response in verses 4 through 6. And he in answer said, Did you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, he made them? And said, on account of this, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Wherefore, they are no longer two, but instead one flesh. Therefore, what God yoked together, let not man separate. So this is Jesus' response. So let's look at this approach bit by bit. And the first I want to note for you is he asks them a question. He starts off with a question. And what a question. I mean, what a question. 
It's like if somebody comes to you and says, uh, so does the Bible teach that, that God has, is sovereign? And your response might be, did you ever read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Everything's his creation. Of course he's sovereign. How could you even ask a question like that if you read the Bible? And Jesus is coming with that kind of a response. They prided themselves on absolutely knowing the Bible cold, up and down, front and back. But he says, this question just sounds like you've never read it. Did you ever, did you ever read that part specifically? And then he goes back to Genesis. But before I get into the, the substance of his answer, just notice the question. And as you read the gospel, notice how many times Jesus asks questions. He asks many questions. He often responds in terms of a question. I think that's instructive to us. So some of us feel the reason why we don't talk to many people is because we don't think that we have all the answers. Pro tip, we don't. <laughs> None of us does. But often it's best to actually start with a question. Find out where the person really is so that you're talking to that person and not just rehearsing a canned speech, you see. And you, most people like telling you what they think. You ask a question, they open up, you know exactly how to talk to them. Well, that's what Jesus did. And just, by the way, there's a book called Questioning Evangelism by a man named Randy Newman. It's a pretty good book. It's not perfect, but it makes a number of very good points. And when it says questioning evangelism, he's not questioning whether we should evangelize. He's talking about evangelizing by asking questions. It's, it's a useful book with some very good ideas, but he... He points out this about Jesus. So the question, and now notice Scripture. And note well, where does Jesus go to answer their question? Does he say, well, Rabbi so-and-such said this? No. Where does he go? Huh? Back to Genesis. Back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He goes back to Genesis, back to that very part in the Bible where many leaders for decades have told us uh, assuring us of their academic credentials that we shouldn't quibble about the first chapters of Genesis. It's not necessary to believe them. They're not as important as John 3.16 or something like that. And we don't really need to be, you know, that narrow about whether they're literal or not or so forth or so on. And you notice that to answer this question, Jesus goes right back there and builds his answer on what he finds there. And you'll notice that a number of people say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are different accounts. What does Jesus quote from? What does verse 4 quote from? Genesis 1. What does verse 5 quote from? Genesis 2. He sees it as two different accounts of the same events, that they absolutely harmonize, and they come together to tell God's truth. So he goes there as authoritative for how we think. So it would be wrong to say Jesus never spoke to these things. Jesus spoke to the authority of Genesis. He spoke to the authority of the creation account. Jesus taught us how to think of it. That if we want to understand about man and about the, what, what humanity means and the right way to live as human beings, we don't go to a test tube. We don't go to a study. We don't go to a pole of uh, pointy heads we go to the first chapters of Scripture where the creator of man creates man and talks about what man's for. That's what Jesus does. And we profess to be Christians. We need to follow his lead. So, number three, I want you to notice then what we're saying is marriage from the top. He goes to the top in the sense of it's the beginning of our race. 
These are the first, this is the first man and the first woman. And he goes right back to the first couple. But it's also marriage from the top in that Jesus goes back to the word of our creator. And he's not going to talk about what marriage means by consensus of rabbis. He's going to talk about what marriage means from what the word of God says and what the creator says when he makes this first couple and invents marriage. So why am I not free to make marriage mean whatever I want it to mean, whatever suits my needs? Not my creation. It's not my invention. You know, I, Travis Russell makes lots of great things. He makes really creative things. Now, if I came into his little workshop and pointed out one of his things and say, I, I say, that's a violin. And Travis says, actually, it's an axe. It's not a violin at all. It's an axe. And I say, no, I think it's a violin. Travis would be perfectly right to say, well, I made it. <laughs> so I think it's an axe. Well, God made us. God made our marriage, so we need to get what we mean and what marriage means from God. And the fact that I actually have to make a point of that, that's kind of an indicator about where we are today in our society, isn't it? Yep. So we are taken back to our creation by our Creator, and we need to listen up. So let's look at what we learn then from his teaching, letter B. From his teaching, what do we learn? Well, for one thing, we learn from Jesus that how many sexes are there? Just the two. There's just the two sexes. Did you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, he made them? Now, that's awkward English, but it reflects the Greek order, which stresses Male and female is what he made. Now, I, I want to stress this, and this is important to get these days. Who's speaking? Real question. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking here. So people who say Jesus doesn't speak about gay and lesbian and trans issues are incorrect. He certainly does. He speaks preemptively when he says God just made males and females, and he's going to say more about what marriage is. So, anybody, anybody wants to say Jesus never spoke to these issues? Yes, he did. And he didn't say what our culture is desperately trying to get everybody to say. So, first about sexes, Jesus says there's two, only two. God made only two sexes. What, is we, what does he teach us about marriage? Well, by God's created design, marriage involves one male and one female join together. Now, what makes it a marriage? What is the essence of marriage? Is it mystical and magical? Not exactly, no. What makes a marriage a marriage is a covenant bond sealed by physical intimacy. Now, I always try my best to preach in a way that doesn't send parents home with little children to ask them hard questions. So I hope you appreciate my efforts. I'm sure I'm not always successful. You can't always be. But so they are joined by covenant, which is then sealed by the act of physical intimacy. Physical intimacy doesn't make a marriage. It seals a marriage that's been made by a covenant. Now, where do I get that? Well, I get it from the Bible. That's what the language means here when Jesus says uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And then later he says, verse 6, they're yoked together. How is he joined to her? How are they yoked together? They're yoked by covenant. Now, just an interesting aside, this word joined, be joined to his wife, that's a Greek word that, that means to uh, be glued together. It's related to the, the Greek noun that means glue. 
So he's, he's to stick to his wife. He's to be an alloy with his wife. They're to cleave together. But again, I say, what is it that binds them together? Well, that they've lived together for a while. No, that's not what Jesus says. It's not what the Bible teaches. Well, that they decided they're committed to each other. They don't need a piece of paper. Actually, that's not what the Bible teaches. They are joined by covenant, and a covenant is a formal commitment, a formal public commitment to each other. The Bible teaches this in a number of places. One of them is, I'll just read these to you. This is a lot to talk about today. Proverbs 2.17, speaking of the shady lady in Proverbs 2.17, Solomon describes her as the woman who forsakes the close companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And what is that covenant she's forgetting? Her marriage covenant that makes her man and wife, makes her join to a husband, and she's going off after someone else. Again, Malachi 2.14, Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So it, it, it is a matter of a formal public declaration of becoming man and wife. It's witnessed by God and witnessed by people. It's a covenant. It's a formal sealing of a relationship. And that sealing is to be for life. So it's, it, it is created by covenant, and it's sealed by physical Im- intimacy. Uh, he shall be joined, uh, excuse me, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So intimacy doesn't make a marriage. People have said that. Every time you have an act of intimacy, uh, there's a marriage there. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. And there, of course, are, are the fools who say, well, I don't need a piece of paper, just... You know, we've decided ourselves that we really belong to each other, so let's, let's go for it. I remember a very young Christian, a, a young Christian girl told me she and her boyfriend had decided that they'd, they'd made that big decision. And uh, it, so it was okay. It wasn't okay. It really wasn't okay. It's one, it wasn't what God had in mind at all. And the thing that makes fornication wrong, sorry if I just gave a question word, but the thing that makes it wrong is it's something that is supposed to happen in marriage and only in marriage. So it is God's way of saying, isn't it great to be married? Which is something one should only say to his spouse. (laughs) And that's why every other context is wrong uh, in God's eyes, by God's word. So it is created by covenant. It's sealed by intimacy. And God's intent is that it be lifelong, that this pair be joined for life. Had Genesis 3 not happened, Adam and Eve would never have divorced. There never would have been any divorce. That's God's design for marriage. But I do need to point out, for what we're going to look at, when Jesus says, let not man separate, or let man not separate, what he's saying is, I command that man not separate this. He's saying, this must not happen. It It is my will that man not separate this union. But I also need to note, sadly, it's not the same as saying that man can't separate. So there are people who say it's impossible to break a marriage bond. No, it's not. And that's not what Jesus is saying, and he's about to say as much. It, it can be done. He's just saying it shouldn't be done. Somebody shouldn't uh, be unfaithful to his marriage and thus give grounds for divorce, in which case it's not the divorcer who's done a wrong. It's the person who's separated by the sinful act, by the act against the covenant, by breaking this two-sided covenant that a man and a woman make. So uh, God's intent is that marriage be lifelong. Now, an aside, 
timely. Before we go on, another thing we learn about this is a reflection on the subject of, of uh, homosexuality and, and what's called gay marriage. A friend of mine calls it gay mirage. That's, that's a better way to say it. But it is equally true that what God joins, man should not separate. And it's true that what God separates, man should not join. And God never allows for the joining of a man and a man or a woman and a, a woman in marriage. This is not something he allows under any circumstances ever. And in that case, there are not even any exceptions. We're, but we're going to see there are exceptions where, mar where divorce is permitted as the second worst option, but there are no circumstances in which the joining of a man and a man is permitted, or a woman and a woman. In that case, you don't have a joining. You don't have a cleaning. You don't have one flesh. You've either got two heads and no body, or you've got a body with no head. You follow me? You got two women, you've got a body no, with no head. Two men, you've got two heads and no body. Either way, it's not the forming of one flesh. It's not what God has in mind by marriage. So, letter B then. The second question and response. Jesus' enemies parry, P-A-R-R-Y. The parry is a defensive mood. You slash your sword, somebody brushes your sword aside, that's a parry. So he has come at them pretty hard. So we see their rejoinder in verse 7. They say to him, well, why then did Moses command to give a document of divorce and to release her? You see, they're just quoting from Deuteronomy 24 that we read earlier. And they say, they say command. I wouldn't make a big deal about that because if you read this in Mark 10, the, the words are reversed. Here they say command. Jesus says permit. In Mark 10, they say permit. Jesus says command. So that's not really the big deal here, uh, leaning on that word. But in both cases, the, the divorce itself is not commanded. The divorce itself is only permitted. What's commanded is that the man can't remarry his wife if she gets married. That's commanded, but the rest is, is set in law, but the divorce is not commanded itself. So we know that the divorce certificate said, you are free to marry any man. That's what a divorce certificate in that time say. We have a lot of them. We have rabbinical evidence going back centuries before Jesus about the, the wording of divorce certificates. You are free to marry any man. Now, it's an interesting thing people, people argue about whether divorce permits remarriage. Well, that's what divorce was. I mean, that was kind of the point of divorce. Divorce ended a marriage, and it made another marriage possible. Both the schools agreed on this, Shammai and Hillel. Uh, it's uh, the point of divorce to end the marriage, to free the parties. The idea of being legitimately divorced but not free to remarry, nobody knew that. Not Jewish society, not Roman society, no religious sect that we know of. That was unheard of. That, that's a more recent invention, the idea of, well, you've divorced but you may not remarry. You've divorced legitimately, pardon me. You've divorced legitimately but you may not remarry. That, that was not known anywhere by anybody, and it's not what Jesus is teaching. So formally, they're asking a valid question. I mean, Jesus sounds like he's saying no, no divorce ever, but here's a passage where Moses gives legislation about divorce, so what's that about? As far as that goes, it's a decent question, uh, one that has to be asked. So now look at Jesus' sir rejoinder. 
That's an answer to an answer. <laughs> if you didn't know that word, you're welcome. <laughs> no extra charge. But um, verses 8 and 9, well, he says to them, Moses, in view of your hard-heartedness, permitted you to release your wives. But from the beginning, it has not happened thus. And I say to you that whoever releases his wife except on the basis of immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, hard-heartedness then. What's that about? Again, he's, he's talking about the fact that divorce is not a creation command. You don't see God talking to Adam and Eve about divorce. That's not God's goodwill. Had there been no sin, there would have been no discussion of divorce. Are you with me? The only reason we're talking about divorce is because of hard-heartedness. Because one party becomes hard-hearted against God, hard-hearted against his or her partner, and is unfaithful to the marriage. And that person is in hard-heartedness breaks the bond of the covenant. And so the other person is forced to respond. That's what, that's what divorce bespeaks. It bespeaks hardness of heart towards God and man. No sin, no divorce. So they're going right there is what Jesus has a problem with. They, they don't want to talk about marriage. They want to talk about divorce. They don't want to talk about faithfulness and godliness and commitment. They want to talk about loopholes. That's what's important to them. Now, I, I won't marry people I haven't counseled, and so when I counsel somebody in marriage, if I were to marry, counsel a couple, and what they mostly wanted to talk about was how to get out of the marriage, well, I'd probably stop the process and talk about that, because you shouldn't be getting married with that on your mind. I, I counsel young people that you should view the, the decision of marriage like you would view giving a surgeon the permission to cut off your right arm. In this sense, that would be a negative thing. Marriage, hopefully, is not a negative thing, but it's permanent. It's not, you, you'll never be the same. You, it's not casual. I remember as a young Christian in a, in a church class decades ago, there was a woman there, was a, a deacon's uh, daughter, and she was talking about her life, and she said, well, I got, I remember this vividly, I got married to so-and-such, and that didn't work out, so we got a divorce. So then I married so-and-such, and that didn't work out, so we got a divorce. And as a young single man, I thought, okay. Now, I know I, did, I don't know the whole story, and maybe this is her embarrassed way of covering over a legitimate reason, but that struck me as a, not a great way to talk about it. It didn't work out. When you put two sinners together, it's never going to work out if by that you mean have no troubles, nothing to work through. There's always going to be something to work through, but you work through it. That's God's design. And their, their major interest is, well, what's the loophole? How, how do I get out of this thing? And that's what Jesus targets, the hard-heartedness. So, causeless divorces. Jesus says, whoever releases his wife except on the basis of immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, let me just, by the way, to return to something we've said a few times, let's re reverse that for a second. Whoever releases his wife on the basis of immorality and marries another does not commit adultery. So see, Jesus' assumption is remarriage after divorce. He gives the, he gives the circumstance in which remarriage after divorce is not moral, not because divorce is immoral per se, but because that divorce was immoral. You follow me? That was not a, um, 
a, a divorce with cause that God recognizes. So the divorce is illegitimate, and that's what makes a second union illegitimate, because the divorce was illegitimate. But it's expected that a divorced person is free to remarry. But that's causeless divorce. In the case of, of, a, of a parting of couples that is not because of immorality, Jesus says that's not a legitimate divorce and does not free people to remarry. But there is divorce with cause on account of adult, well, not adultery. He says immorality. Now, that is a, it's a specific word, but it's broad in that it's not adultery. There is a Greek word meaning adultery. This is a broader word, and I would say the best definition is breaking God's laws of sexuality. And that is broader than the literal act of adultery. It takes in more than just the literal act of adultery. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 probably wasn't about adultery. Why was it probably not about adultery? What was the penalty for adultery? Death penalty, not divorce. So this is Deuteronomy 24. The, this indecency of a word was about something probably sexual, but not exactly adultery. Now, I won't go further into specifics on that but uh, right now and here, but uh, that's the area that he's talking about. Deuteron uh, sorry, Exodus 21 adds more to the obligations of marriage besides uh, sexual faithfulness. There's, uh, abuse would be another area that the Bible recognizes. And, and um, Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 7, desertion as another thing that ends and breaks the marital bond and makes remarriage, uh, a divorce and remarriage an option. That's divorce with cause, and with both those cases, both parties are free to remarry. This is the exception uh, Jesus lays down. Uh, they're glued together, they're one flesh, and unless there's been an act that has broken that, divorce is not permitted. If there has been an act that breaks that, divorce is permitted, not commanded. They might reconcile. There might be forgiveness. It might be possible. In some case, and Jesus doesn't say how many times the act has to have happened. There are people who say it has to be uh, long-term and hard-hearted. Well, that's more than Jesus says. He doesn't say that. There are some things that are a single act is huge enough. But, but if there's a possibility of reconciliation, of putting it back together, that would always be more to God's heart. As I say, divorce is sometimes the second worst uh, option. I remember, again, as a very young man, speaking to a Christian lawyer in, in a bookstore, and I'd never met a Christian lawyer before, and uh, there may not be many of them. But, uh, but I, I, he said, he, actually, I think he said that he was a divorce attorney, and I said, that has to be hard. And he said, yeah, it is hard. He said, and the one question I always get from every client is, do you think I'm going to win? And he says, the answer I always give them is no. In a divorce, nobody wins. But it may be the least worst option or the second worst option. But it's, it's not a happy option. Never going to be a happy. That's why God says in Malachi, I hate divorce. He doesn't say I hate divorced people. But he does say I hate divorce because it's, there's always sin and there's always broken people, ruined people, and often children as well. So now we're taken to the third question and answer. And in this case, the question is implied. The disciples are baffled. I told you when we looked over this whole section that Jesus starts off shocking a bunch of people. 
And he's shocked the Pharisees, and, and, and he's also shocked his disciples. So we, we see Jesus' disciples' puzzlement in verses 10 through 12. We see their puzzlement. They say something that has an implied question in it in verse 10. They're, they're shocked. His disciples say to him, if this is the case of the man with his wife, it is not advantageous to marry. Almost like they're, they're wondering if, what is Genesis 2, 18? They're wondering if that's right. <laughs> it's not good for a man to be alone. Well, they're thinking in that case, maybe it is better for a man to be alone if he's so stuck in marriage. Well, this is not one of their golden hours, is it? There's a lot of, a lot of non-golden hours. I find that encouraging. This shows that they were in the Hillel school. They were shocked, but actually shocked because uh, Jesus gave this narrow exception and also said that without that, there's not remarriage. And that, that was to them a shocking position. They'd not heard this, that there are cases where remarriage is not an option. And so, <laughs> obviously, their view of marriage is not as, as delightful as you would hope because they're saying, well, in a case like that, if you're that stuck in marriage then maybe it's better just not to get married at all. And that's the implied question. Is it maybe better for a man not to marry? That's their implied question. And so Jesus gives a a, a reply, which is also shocking. Verses 11 and 12. And a little challenging. Challenging enough that I'll take a swallow in just a second. Of water. So Jesus, he said to them, not all accept this word, but rather those to whom it has been given. Well, this verb translated accept, it's an interesting verb. It's the idea of, ha- of, of being able to make room for something, of, of being able to make space for something. And so that's why I say in the, in the footnote that maybe you could use our more idiomatic, not everybody can get this, or not everybody can handle this. This is a heavy thing to say. But what's the saying that he's referring to? Well, he's not referring to what he said because he would never say that about God's word. He'd never say about God's word, well, you know, not everybody can accept it. It's only for those who can accept it. He'd never say that. He's saying it about what they just said. That's the word he's talking about. They said, maybe it's, just, it's, an, it's not advantageous to marry. And he's saying, well, not everybody can accept that option. And this is interesting. Well, let me read on. For there are eunuchs who from the womb of their mother were born thus, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs, in quotation marks, I supply the quotation marks, there's never those in Greek. There are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs on account of the kingdom of the heavens. He who is able to accept, let him accept. Well, taking it, you know what a eunuch is, and, and the effect of it is somebody who is not ruled by sexual desires. That if somebody was going to watch over a harem, uh, his Lord would have him castrated so that he, he would not worry about him, the design was, that he'd not worry about him being driven by sexual desires. And so in, he's saying there's some who were born thus with, with uh, physical conditions. There's some who were made that by men. And then in the third option, I, I take it as being metaphorical, and that's why I put it in quotation marks, there are those who give them lives themselves over to a life uh, that is, does not uh, pursue sexual desires, and so they don't marry. Now, there's a couple of things to notice there. Th- those are the two options, according to Jesus. Th- that's very instructive. The two options are you get married, and if you get married, you accept what God says marriage is, or you just you, you don't 
pursue your sexual desires. Sleeping around is not an option. You, you say, well, I don't think I'm really up to marriage. I'm just going to sleep around. Not, not an option. I don't have desires for women, so I'm going to pair up with another man or another woman. Not an option. There's not options. So it's interesting that Jesus says marriage is not necessarily for everybody. Now, that's shocking because the view of the rabbis at the time was marriage was for everybody. Everybody absolutely needs to get married, but Jesus says not necessarily. There are circumstances where that's not the case. So he speaks of those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us some more information in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Take a look there with me. Turn, please, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul here is asking some, answering some questions about practical matters that the Corinthians had sent him. Thank you, Corinthians, because they did. We have these answers. And I'm, I'm going to pluck some things out of, out of the context and not take a long time to explain. Just want to focus on what he says here, verses 7 through 9 first. What then shall we say? Oh, yeah, it's Romans 7. Also a good section, but not what we're talking about. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. How's that? Unmarried. However, each man has his own gift from God. Now, that's interesting. He uses the Greek word charisma, like a spiritual gift. And he says it's a spiritual gift, whether you are married or single, like he is. Each man has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain as I. So you've been released from a marriage or your, part, your, your spouse has died. You don't need to remarry, Paul says. You can stay just the way I am. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A eunuch does not burn with passion, you see. A eunuch is not obsessed with desire. If that's the case, then you should marry. If that's not the case, well, look at verse 32. And we'll read to verse 35. But I want you to be free from concern. And here he actually kind of reflects Exodus 21. It's interesting. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Exodus 21 says there's obligations in caring caring for your wife, how he may please his wife. And his interests have been divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how how she may please her husband. Now, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote propriety and undistracted devotion to the Lord. So what he's doing is he's just giving insight as to what Jesus means, that there are those who have the gift of being content to be unmarried, who can use that time then to serve the Lord. They can serve the Lord with undivided uh, devotion without thinking about the responsibilities of marriage, which are another kind of blessing, of course. But he's just talking, you could say, tactically. And there have been those who've been gifts to the church and to the work of God who uh, are content to be unmarried and simply give themselves to the service of the Lord. People like John Stott and others. 
So what's shocking then is the, is the popular expectation is everybody will marry, which is indeed normal and is God-honoring and good. But Jesus says, mm, not necessarily everyone. And if I may, the, the implication also is, if you're not going to go into marriage with God's mindset, then it's better not to marry. If you're not going into marriage with the mindset that for your part, this is your lifelong commitment, well then, don't marry. But if you do, marry like God says to. Marry with God's mindset towards marriage. If you're unwilling to shoulder the, the full yoke of marriage, well then don't start it. So, let's summarize this and make some kind of application. We've seen marriage from the top. This is the way God sees marriage. It's the way He began our race for marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about sexes and tells us about sex and tells us about marriage. Marriage is a covenant between, it's a, it's a bilateral, it's a two-sided conditional covenant between a man and a woman. Let me be even more specific, an unmarried man and a woman. I don't say biological man because that's the only kind there is. I say creational. So a man and a woman, it's a covenant between the two. Divorce and remarriage are concessions to the fall, ways to deal with the sins that God recognizes as breaking that covenant, such as immorality, desertion, abuse. Uh, but it's not committed, uh, not commanded, pardon me. And when permitted, divorce is just the least worst, the, the second least worst option. It is uh, uh, not a, sh- a sin or a shame on the victim's part, and it always means freedom to remarry. So let me also say that being divorced does not make a person a second-class citizen. Uh, it does not disqualify him from membership or service or anything else. If somebody's been wronged in marriage and has, has divorced, then that, that doesn't make him uh, a second-class citizen or her. And also, if somebody has had an illegitimate divorce and there's nothing to do about it beyond repent and live according to God's Word now, well, divorce, illegitimate divorce is a sin. But it's not the unpardonable sin. We've all sinned. Jesus died for sin. All manner of sins can be forgiven men, apart from that specific unpardonable sin we've talked about in Matthew 12. So, this is the teaching of God. And uh, in uh, marriage, then, uh, those of us who enter into marriage, uh, to follow God in marriage, we find that marriage is a place where we practice our faith. <laughs> it's a, it's, marriage requires you to be a Christian, and it's just like being a Christian, just more so. Anyone else you have uh, friction with, you can walk away and go home. But if you're having friction with the person you're married to, well, then you really are forced to go to the Bible and say, okay, how does the Bible say to handle friction? How does the Bible say to handle complaints? How does the Bible say to handle anger? to handle uh, disagreements. The Bible says a lot about it. In every other relationship, you can go home and maybe not be faced with it. In marriage, they are. 
And so I say in closing, if you, uh, particularly if you're a newcomer, when I was fairly new here, I did a, a series on marriage that was both biblical and, and sought to be very practical. So you can find that online at Sarum, uh, at, on Sermon Audio, that there was a Sunday school series on marriage. So we close with that. Let's close in a word of prayer together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living, inerrant word. We thank you for how timeless your truth is, how it speaks to our lives, words spoken thousands of years ago, and yet they are so timely. We pray that our thoughts and our actions, our affections will be formed according to your will and by your word. I pray for all of the marriages here, Father, that you will be blessing each person, where there's tension, where there's trials, where there's difficulty. I pray, Father, for your grace, for the Holy Spirit's ministry of comfort and strength, of humbling, and of bringing conformity to the character of Christ. Make uh, the application of your word very clear in each of those situations where there's tension, where there's blessed lack of tension. Bless that couple with a fruitful ministry together. I pray as well for all of the folks who've not entered into marriage yet, who are thinking of it. We pray, Father, that you will mold their minds and their thoughts entirely according to your word so that they will approach marriage in a way that is taught by Jesus, that they'll have Jesus' attitude towards marriage as they approach it and glorify you by the decisions they make. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.